0: Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my host is a good old friend from a long time ago. Uh, we met many, many times uh, in very various places, uh, and we shared stories about Jerusalem. Professor Konstantinos Papastaris. Kostas, if I may, is uh, currently an assistant professor at the University of Thessaloniki in Greece, in the Department of Political Science. He has a record of, I can't even count, so I would just say countless articles related to Jerusalem, the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate and their relationship, particularly in the late Ottoman, but more importantly uh, around the uh, period of the British mandate. So if you just do Google Scholar, you find tons of articles and all of them very interesting and fascinating. But first of all, Kostas, welcome.
1: Robbie, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, it's a real pleasure to, to contribute to, to the podcast on Jerusalem, and thank you very much for your kind words and the introduction.
0: The first question I want to ask you is that, do you have any personal connection with Jerusalem? And if not, how did you get to work on the relationship between Jerusalem and the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate, which is such a fascinating topic? In a complex
1: one? Well, thank you for the question, uh, Roberto. It's, um, well, I, I was uh, interested in uh, Jerusalem and the Orthodox Church of Jerusalem uh, from uh, when I was uh, still uh, at the high school, to be honest, uh, when I read uh, a, a book of uh, Stratis circas, a Greek, a great, he, a Greek novelist, very famous, about uh, Jerusalem and the Greek uh, uh, club of Jerusalem, and uh, then I started uh, reading about Jerusalem, uh, and uh, after uh, my master, I I chose to work on uh, on the church, because I I studied church history and theology uh, and. Uh, Uh, I chose to work on the Church of Jerusalem, and uh, on the mandate period, and particularly on uh, the status book question and the holy places question during the British mandate. I worked on uh, the archives, I had the opportunity to to visit Jerusalem, of course, and to work on uh, the Israel State Archives, and uh, where there is a lot of material. Uh, about the mandate period, and uh, I was very lucky. I lucky to to have uh, access to uh, the archives of the Patriarchate of Jerusalem, uh, at least uh, uh, to some part of the archives. So after my PhD, I had a lot of material, and I continued my work, my research on uh, the Church of Jerusalem, and particularly on. The relations between the religious bureaucracy and the congregation, which had, of course, a national uh, uh, and the political uh, aspect, uh, namely the nationalization process. And, uh, uh, then I visited and I worked at the Hebrew University for, t- for two years as a postdoc researcher. I wrote some papers uh, and then, and currently since uh, 2017, uh, I am uh, working uh, at uh, the project uh, uh, European Cultural Diplomacy and Arab Christians in Palestine uh, with uh, a connected history during the formative years of the Middle East uh, of the mandate. Uh, With uh, Professor, Associate Professor Karen Sanchez. Uh, This project is funded by the the Netherlands Organization for Scientific Research. And uh, we have published some work on uh, the Jerusalem affairs as well. Currently, I'm working on uh, the work uh, on the question of autocephaly of the Church of Jerusalem. During the Ottoman times. And I hope that uh, there will be uh, a very interesting publication.
0: I just want to say something about the archives be- before we move on, because Obser, you had access to one of the most secret archives probably in the world, uh, even more <laughs> than the Vatican ones. When people think about uh, Vatican archives, you know, think about the secrecy, but actually getting access to some archives in Jerusalem it's even more uh, complicated and sometimes it's only based on nationalities and languages. So uh, kudos to you that you had the, the possibility to access that treasure. Yeah. I was but very
1: lucky indeed.
0: The first thing I want to ask you is very much about uh, the Greek Orthodox Church in, in Jerusalem in particular. This is a feature uh, you know, that marked the history of Jerusalem for millennia, but sometimes it gets lost in, uh, in the history of all of the Arab communities and certainly the, uh, the multi-layer history of Jerusalem. So I was wondering if you can just give us a sense of what is the Greek Orthodox Church in Jerusalem? How does it work? And uh, if you can also start introducing the question of the divisions between the Greek clergy and obviously the Arab laity.
1: From the incorporation of uh, Palestine to the Ottoman Empire in 1516, uh, uh, the Patriarchate of Jerusalem uh, was, transfo- was transformed from uh, uh, its, the, the, the structure of its operation was transformed from a church centered organization to a monastery centered organization. So it took the monastic form of uh, bureaucratic function, if I may uh, say that. And because of the centralized function, the centralized structure of the Ottoman Empire, uh, the, the, the Church of Jerusalem, which had become a monastery, a brotherhood, and its head was the Patriarch of Jerusalem, became gradually subject to the control of the Ecumenical Patriarchate of Constantinople, the synod of which, in some instances, even appointed the Jerusalem Patriarch, especially after the uh, 17th century. This, of course, uh, led to the uh, existence of two two centers of power uh, within the Jerusalem church. The first one uh, was at uh, the pan-Ottoman level, working uh, in in Istanbul. Uh, for the high political affairs of the institution and the other power center of the church was in Jerusalem, uh, uh, which was operating at a local level. And the fact that the Jerusalem church was controlled by the church of Constantinople uh, was the effect of this state of affairs was to become gradually Hellenized, especially uh, after the 18th century and the gradual uh, construction and development of the Greek national identity. And this is uh, how uh, the uh, to put it very, Uh, simply, an oversimplification, actually, uh, how the Church of Jerusalem, in terms of bureaucracy, in terms of uh, hierarchy, was in their great majority was of Greek national identity, while the congregation was the indigenous Arab Palestinians. Of course, this this dispute, uh, which uh, had various uh, moments, political moments, especially after the the late Ottoman uh, uh, period, and particularly after eighteen seventy two, was not only related to the national feeling, to the national feeling or the national identity. Uh, it was also related to the. Uh, secularization process, the idea that uh, the congregation, the religious body should have a say, should participate in the administration of, the, of church affairs, and not only the church establishment, uh, as well as the, uh, the there was an economic aspect, the financial aspect, uh, namely the Uh, the administration of the vast real estate property uh, of the Church of Jerusalem which was also related to uh, after especially 1917 and the Balfour Declaration it was also related to the future of uh, of Palestine to the political question. I want to
0: ask you something about properties because obviously you already mentioned also holy uh, places, and I was wondering if you can give us a sense of what exactly the Greek Orthodox Church owns, both in terms of holy places or so the, the control of these sacred areas, but also in terms of uh, lands or buildings. Uh, often we hear in the news that the Greek Orthodox Church is somehow involved in the sales of land, of other properties. So And it's confusing for many because, obviously, we think about, particularly in the current times, the state of Israel, and it sounds rather bizarre that actually there's an entity like the Greek Orthodox Church that is involved in the sale of, as I said earlier, properties of buildings.
1: Okay, well, this is the million dollar question, probably. Uh, uh, Roberto, uh, these are two separate questions. Uh, As far as the holy places is concerned, the the question on the holy places. The holy places, the ownership or the custodianship of the holy places is regulated by uh, the so-called status quo agreement or status quo um, doctrine. According to the status quo is is regulated by the arrangement of Firman of the Ottoman Firman of 1757. Uh, Actually, there was a dispute after the incorporation of Palestine and especially after the 17th century between the Greek Patriarchate, the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate, or the Orthodox Patriarchate to be more uh, clear, uh, and the of the di Terra Santa, the Franciscans, and as well as the Armenian Patriarchate uh, about the custodianship or the ownership of the Holy Places. This dispute, uh, which had many episodes, uh, was finalized uh, by the Sublime Port in 1757. And uh, because for a, number, for a number of reasons, the major of which was the external, um, uh, the external, namely the Uh, interventions of the other uh, great powers of the time, especially France and Russia. France, uh, under the capitulation regime, because of the capitulation regime, uh, was uh, after protecting the Franciscans and uh, uh, pressed uh, for uh, more privileges over the holy places. And on the other hand, Russia was doing the same for the Orthodox uh, Church. Uh, So the Sublime Port uh, issued this firman of 1757, giving the the primary place in the holy places to the Orthodox Church. This frame, this normative uh, frame, was further acknowledged by the port in 1852, uh, uh, just before the Crimean War, and uh, it was uh, this state of affairs was further acknowledged by the international community in the Treaty of Paris in 1856 and the Congress of Berlin in 1878. So the Orthodox Church acquired the predominium, the a predominant position in uh, comparison to the other denominations, uh, which was of course, a a cause of constant antagonism between uh, between these denominations. Uh, There were some uh, minor changes uh, which had the consent of all the, the parties involved. Uh, after, uh, I mean, after 1757. Um, um, Nowadays, uh, there are no any serious, at least, uh, disputes between the churches as far as the status quo is concerned. There are some uh, uh, between the Ethiopians and the Copts, or the Orthodox and the Armenians. Uh, But uh, in general lines, uh, there is uh, cooperation between the various denominations. Now, as far as uh, the question about the real estate property of the the Church of Jerusalem is concerned, uh, this is, uh, This is related to the legal framework that uh, was uh, in effect during the Ottoman times. Uh, This land was acquired by the Patriarchate in the Ottoman times, not afterwards. Uh, And uh, it was acquired as VACF properties as endowments, because during the Ottoman times, the church had not the the right, it could not acquire land as a legal person, as a legal personality, okay? Only as an endowment, only as a vaccine. Together, the the, the Patriarchate has to give some numbers, if I may is the owner or the trustee of uh, properties estimated to be 631 properties all over Palestine and Israel uh, according to tamari the patriarchy together with the russian with the russian mission uh, had more VAC properties, then the Muslims and the Jews and the Catholic endowments together, Katz and Karg, in their two works in, uh, published in British Journal Middle Eastern Studies and Middle Eastern Studies, identified half of the properties and uh, they were more that they were, I, I don't remember the exact uh, number, but uh, it was, they they argued that the Patrick of Jerusalem is the, uh, has the more real estate properties in Israel-Palestine after the state of Israel. And, uh, and uh, so it's uh, it's a lot. As far as the old city is concerned, which is extremely important, for the region. Uh, it is one third of uh, the total area of uh, 900 uh, dunams. Uh, it's the old city and 300, approximately 300 dunams belong to the patriarchy. So we're speaking about one third of the old city. And uh, this land was, uh, was acquired by uh, monks in the 19th century, such as Nikiforos Petatsis, or Sarkistan Athenios in uh, late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, uh, we are speaking about the, ne- the current neighbourhoods the, 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 the of Rehavia, Talpiot, it's very, clo- very close to the old train station and the German uh, colony, and, uh, and not only there, it's uh, these lands. Of course, are leased to uh, after uh, the British Mandate, and especially after 1948, these uh, states were leased to the State of Israel to, to the Jews.
0: So we can safely say that between all these sites, land, and buildings the Greek Orthodox Church essentially is the biggest landowner or landlord in Palestine, Israel.
1: But one one thing of the I, biggest, at least, yes.
0: Yeah, one of the biggest indeed. But the, the point is that despite the ownership and the control, that doesn't necessarily translate into a, a Palestinian ownership. And I think this is one of the most heated debates uh, amongst the Greek Orthodox Church and, and obviously its followers. Uh, you already mentioned that, that obviously the... The hierarchical structure is for the most part Greek, but obviously the followers, particularly living in the area, are obviously Christian Palestinians. And I guess it's no secret that the relationship between the two has been marked by ups and downs. I would say mostly downs. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of the history of this relationship between the hierarchical structure, so before the clergy, the patriarch himself, and obviously the
1: Arab late. The this dispute, uh, the starting point of this dispute is 1872. The Palestinians, the, the, the Palestinian congrega- the Arab congregation at that time, uh, was uh, uh, re- revolted actually against the decision of the patriarchate. Uh, of Constantinople uh, to uh, withdraw its and the the decision of the of the synod of the Brotherhood to withdraw the recognition of Patriarch Cyril because of his support to uh, the uh, Russian, as they call it, at least. To the Russian endeavor to control uh, the Jerusalem church uh, the Russian mission and uh, and the various uh, Russian uh, institutions operating in uh, in the Ottoman empire uh, were considered by the dominant greek uh, uh, um, church um, uh, officials, hierarchies, uh, as an alien, as the hostile other, if I may, uh, which is after uh, getting the dominance, stealing the dominance of the Greeks and uh, putting Russian hierarchies or local Arab hierarchies in their place. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, in uh, in all the in all church institutions in uh, in the other patriarchates within the Ottoman Empire, uh, there was an ongoing secularization process, secularization of the church administration structures. So in the church of uh, Constant- in Istanbul and in, in Antioch as well, the laity, the congregation started to have a same administration. The Arab Orthodox, the Arab Palestinian Orthodox was asking, they had the, actually the same demands. However, the Greek brotherhood, the Greek religious hierarchy Refused to apply this set of regulations, uh, which were in a, uh, which were applied in the other uh, jurisdictions, church jurisdictions. So, uh, in 1875, there was the, the fundamental law of the patriarchy, which had no any uh, article which. Uh, uh, would give the congregation any right to have a say in the administration. And the same applied to the, applies to the internal regulations of 1902 uh, uh, which uh, did not satisfy any of the Arab orthodox demands. So after uh, 1908 and the uh, Young Turks revolution uh, there was uh, the, a clause in uh, the in the constitution on, of the Young Turks which uh, uh, gave uh, a, the, which could uh, which the Arab Orthodox interpreted it as giving them the opportunity to uh, organize, to uh, establish a mixed council which would have uh, a, which would uh, give them the a co-administration of the church, especially as far as the finances were concerned. Uh, however, this was not, accepted, uh, these demands were not accepted by the bureaucracy. hierarchy. Uh, there was uh, uh, a new Turkish order in 1910, which uh, allowed the establishment, the creation of this mixed council, but this mixed council because of the war uh, could not uh, operate effectively. There were some meetings, not some meetings. Um, the mixed Council met uh, regularly according to uh, the, according to new research. Uh, however, there was not any change, any reform of the way that the finances, and uh, the overall uh, administration of the Jerusalem Patriarchate uh, had uh, at that time, the, this was further than the Arab Orthodox demands uh, was, were further uh, uh, promoted in a way uh, in the first years of the British mandate. Uh, there was uh, a, a commission uh, uh, created, the well known uh, Bertram Young Commission, uh, but uh, which this commission um, supported or proposed a new framework of governance, of church governance. Uh, there were some. Regulations, some draft regulations for new draft regulations for the patriarchate. However, these were never enacted. And the reason behind this, uh, uh, behind the British decision not to change the state of affairs, was uh, that um, uh, the patriarchate was viewed as. Uh, a Greek institution, and Athens in 1939 at least was an important ally for the British. Uh, just two years before the Second World War, uh, we know we have the archives, which uh, plainly uh, give us uh, this uh, uh, this view, and. Uh, Uh, Moreover, uh, there there was the opinion prevailed that any change of the constitution of the Church of Jerusalem would be a violation of the status quo. So if there was a violation of the status quo, uh, it would be a, uh, a blow, probably, not a blow, but it would be a a difficult uh, uh, situation for the British taking into account that uh, uh, this this might have um, triggered uh, the intervention of uh, other powers such as France or or Greece or the status quo was of the holy places was uh, and the maintenance of the status quo was a condition sine qua non for for the british and uh, in order to uh, avoid any intervention in their colony and Before- this is why there was no any change uh, actually after 40 years and despite the fact that there were uh, the, the arab demands were met with with the the, the british acknowledged the uh, the right uh, that the, the, the palestine orthodox were right at least to some uh, uh, to some degree uh, they did nothing to change uh, this state of affairs
0: ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within
1: reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Before uh,
0: talking about uh, the Monday period, uh, particularly in relation to the uh, Greek colony, and also discussing later on uh, the famous uh, ceremony of the Holy Fires that takes place at Easter time in Jerusalem, I want to jump forward and actually ask about uh, the, the, the contemporary status quo. Um, you know, sometimes people don't really realize that this status quo is still valid, and I was wondering if there's been any change in the past few decades, and uh, certainly how the status quo navigated, uh, you know, changes in the administration of Jerusalem, uh, obviously with a uh, First, uh, the division between Israel and uh, and Jordan, and after '67, obviously Jerusalem now uh, once again ruled by by the Israelis. So I, I was wondering to what extent, or if, if any change occurred in the status quo, and what's the position of the Arab of the uh, Greek Church uh, in the status quo, and also if relations between the Arab lady and the Greek Orthodox hierarchy uh, have changed uh, up to 2022.
1: Uh, a lot of questions. So uh, after 1948, uh, both um, the the Church of Jerusalem, the Patriarchate, goes under the, the the Jordanian rule, of course, in the old city. Uh, the the Jordanians, uh, though they were very close. They understood, of course, uh, the, the demands of the, of the Arab Orthodox, of the Palestinian Orthodox. Uh, they did not proceed to any re- reform uh, because uh, they thought that uh, maintaining sta- the status of the holy places would be uh, po- would have a positive effect in their relations to uh, to the other European uh, powers. Uh, that is, uh, moreover, uh, Greece uh, had a very good uh, relation with the with the Arab states and Jordan. Uh, Greece, let me remind you that uh, it did not recognize uh, Israel, the State of Israel, in 1948. Uh, this recognition uh, was actually uh, taken place in 1993, so almost 40 years after the, the establishment, the creation of the State of Israel. Um, so Jordan. Uh, was had very good relations with Greece. Greece was uh, anti-Israeli, if I may. Uh, and uh, so there was no reason from a diplomatic uh, point of view for Jordan uh, to change the status quo uh, or uh, to uh, make any move against, uh, uh, the protege of, of Athens, of the Greek state. And this is why uh, the regulation, the new uh, fundamental law of the patriarchate uh, in, in enacted in 1958, so under the Jordanian, when uh, the patriarchate was under the, uh, was part, was. Uh, in in Jordan, let's say Jerusalem was under Jordanian rule, did uh, not uh, uh, stipulate, uh, did not have any clause uh, which uh, might be viewed as uh, um, disputing uh, the Greek character, the uh, supposed from a historical perspective, Greek character of the institution.
0: Just wondering, again, about the the contemporary situation. I mean, what is the relationship between the Greek Orthodox Church, the State of Israel, and also with the Palestinian Authority, given, you know, Mm. while Oslo may have failed uh, in terms of achieving a a permanent peace, but certainly created another institution. And and I was wondering, how does the Church
1: navigate through, uh, you know, different institutions and different group of people? Uh, we know that there is a very good working relationship with uh, both institutions, both with Israel and the Palestine Authority. Uh, I don't know or, or uh, maybe it's we know at least that the relations with the between the Greek hierarchy and the Arab congregation uh, they, they are problematic. However, this uh, problematic uh, uh, relation is not reflected, at least in terms of uh, legislation and diplomacy, in the relations between the patriarchate and the um, Jordanian kingdom or the kingdom of Jordan or the Palestinian Authority.
0: When I interviewed Maria Chiara Rioli and asked about uh you know, the question of Catholics in Palestine and in, in Jerusalem, uh, obviously many had the impression there was a very complex relationship. But uh, after hearing, the, the, you know, more about the Greek Orthodox Church, I must say that this is even, you know, it's taken to another level. So let me go back to, uh, to history and ask about uh, the famous Greek colony of Jerusalem. Uh, it kind of disappeared after 1948, and it's only because of the work of some Greeks of Jerusalem, mostly in the diaspora, that actually the, the very idea to talk about uh, the Greek colony of Jerusalem came back uh, showing that actually, again, Jerusalem had, was multi-layered and had the presence of a, a variety of communities, some that survived uh, and some that disappeared. And so I was wondering if you can give us a sense of what was this Greek colony, who were the people, and what happened to the Greeks of Jerusalem?
1: This is uh, I, I can talk for uh, for more than for a day for days about these questions. Uh, I talk a lot. I'm sorry. Apologies for that. So let me give you some first some um, uh, information about the about the Greek community in general. In uh, okay, if I may. Uh, so the first the, uh, the first immigrants the Greek immigrants in Palestine came uh, mid, in mid 19th century from other uh, places uh, with, of the Ottoman Empire. At that time, we cannot speak about Greeks in the strict sense. We can speak about Orthodox, Rome, as they call it, in uh, the Ottoman Empire about Orthodox who speak Greek and they are affiliated to, or they are close to the Greek national idea. However, these Greek people, if we can call them this way, were uh, actually integrated into the Arab Orthodox national body, however, When we speak about the second wave of the Greek immigrants and this takes place in late 19th century, we see that uh, these people have strong bonds and and loyalties to the Greek uh, national center. Uh, They use, uh, they speak Greek and they don't speak Arab and they Define themselves in terms of culture uh, as Greeks, and in this way, there is the distinction between the in-group, out-group. The in-group, out-group, this out-group distinction is made along not religious lines but cultural lines, linguistic lines. So, in uh, the end of nineteenth century, beginning of uh, twentieth century we have in 1902 actually, we have the first organizational structure of the Greek community in Jerusalem. And uh, this was made after the initiative of the Greek consul, and uh, it was called uh, an association uh, FPEA, the Greek association FPEA. So the Patriarchate supported this initiative supported it financially, uh, in particularly the sacristan uh, Ephemios, the famous, the well-known Ephemios, uh, who built uh, many uh, construct, who construct many buildings and uh, fund many, the construction of many buildings in Haifa, uh, Jaffa and Jerusalem, uh, gave to this association, a plot of land uh, close to the monastery of uh, Katamon, more than a hundred thousand square peaks for the construction of the Greek colony. It is between the German colony and the monastery of Katamon. Uh, So this land was divided in 80 parcels and distributed. And after some years, the same Athenius gave another plot of land Uh, which uh, was divided uh, again in uh, many parcels and given to the members of the association. So there were two colonies, actually, the old lower Greek district, and the new upper district, which was in Baca, close to to Baca Valley. And uh, moreover, Ephemius funded the construction of the buildings. He also funded the construction of the famous Greek club, in Jerusalem. Uh, However, the World War One made the local Ottoman authorities to view the Greek subjects, the Greek or the Orthodox Ottoman subjects as an enemy as a fifth column, if I may. So they were uh, sent to exile in Syria and in Kilikia they returned to Jerusalem, found them in a very bad state. And they were forced to sell their properties. Almost uh, or more than a half of the Greek properties within the Greek colony were sold at that time to uh, Arab Orthodox, to Arab Palestinians. And uh, this created a problem in uh, the sense that uh, it was a Greek colony, but the Greeks or uh, many Greeks were out of this colony, in their uh, for their uh, in their view at least, and uh, there was uh, a, an activity in the part of the. Patriotic and the consulate and the Greek consulate. The Greek uh, club and the Greek community was reorganized. Uh, there was established uh, a music association, uh, a Greek charity association, a Greek uh, uh, sport club, a Greek football club, a ladies club. And um, uh, there were also three newspapers published by three Greek newspapers. So in the beginning, uh, after the Young Turks Revolution, we have the uh, newspaper Palestine in Greek. Uh, However, after the uprising of the Palestinian Orthodox against the Patriarchate, the editor left for Alexandria, for Cairo, excuse me. Uh, And uh, then we have the Gazette of the Patriarchate Nea Sion in 1904. And then after in 1940, we have the weekly newspaper Kyrix and the newspaper Eliniki Zoe. This newspaper Eliniki Zoe has very, very important material, valuable material about the, the, what, happen, what happened, what happened. In after 1948 in Jerusalem and the Greek properties in Western Jerusalem. So if someone is interested in, uh, in this topic, he will find very good material, very interesting material.
0: It's a fascinating story that certainly requires, uh, at some point, uh, I guess, a good book about uh, Greek, uh, uh, the Greek colony of Jerusalem, in a sense, Greek Jerusalem. Uh, there's been a number of works published uh, on the various communities uh, populating Jerusalem, particularly during the British mandate. And and suddenly the Greek one is missing. I have one last question, uh, which goes back to the church and also uh, a sort of competition with a fellow podcast, uh, Stories from Palestine, that hosted a brilliant episode about uh, the famous holy fire ceremony hosted by the Greek Orthodox at Easter. And so I was wondering, uh, given your expertise, if you can give us a sense of what is this ceremony, but also how it played uh, more importantly in political terms, given that you're a political scientist and historian, uh, you know, particularly in the, in the 20th century, any still as any political role uh, you know, in, in the 21st century. Well, uh, this is a very
1: interesting question and uh, a dangerous question, if I may. Uh, well, first of all, the ceremony of the Holy Fire is, uh, reflects the preeminence of the Orthodox Patriarch and the Orthodox patriarchy. The Orthodox Patriarch is the one, is the church official who gets the Holy Fire and gives it to the other, religious office, officials. Uh, that, that's the first point. The second point uh, is that there is no change in uh, the in the ceremony from the 17th or 18th century. Uh, as far as I know, at least, uh, we have many uh, narrations. Uh, we have an official uh, uh, narrative about uh, the ceremony from uh, from Kast in his famous book on uh, the status quo question, and uh, we have reports from the in the British archives about the ceremony, and we have some church uh, descriptions descriptions coming from church officials. The question that, uh, was, uh, uh, that was open is: what is the miracle or the ceremony of the Holy Fire or the tradition of the Holy Fire? There was uh, a book uh, published two years ago, three years ago, by Dimitris Salitakos uh, in Greek. Uh, he is a journalist who made some research on this question some as a journalist and uh, who got an interview from some important church officials of the Jerusalem Patriarchate, who said on camera that uh, this is not a miracle, it is a tradition. And uh, uh, they actually, one of them described how it is it is done and one of uh, according to to the author according to Alikakos, the sacristan uh, gets uh, a- enters 3 hours before the ceremony starts enters the, the church the um, and uh, place places the 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 fire the candle over on the grave of jesus then the patriarch enters he gets the fire and he gets out of and gives it to uh, the congregation to the to the flock that is according to journalist Dimitris Alikakos uh, how this tradition miracle ceremony whatever is is done. And this is stated on camera by uh, the church official who actually do this. I think that uh, this book will be translated, uh, I don't know, but in any case, the thing is that uh, we are speaking about a tradition. We should not consider uh, this tradition to be uh, something uh, to something against the, um, uh, the, tra- the, the religious sentiment. I don't know. It's uh, Some people believe in this tradition as a miracle. This is a personal, uh, actually this is an existential question for some people. However, and another point, last point, I know I speak a lot and it's uh, uh, and I speak slowly, a bit slowly. Uh, the thing is that the Patriarch of Jerusalem, the Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem, has, when he enters, he has his uh, John, he, he, he's accompanied by the head of the Israeli police in the Old City. That in symbolic, that has a symbolic, a special symbolic meaning. It might means nothing. It is the Israel, an Israeli official who is uh, taking care of uh, security or protecting the patriarch. Okay, that's one interpretation. The other interpretation is that, which has a historic significance and the political significance is that, the Israeli official has is considered to be part of the ceremony. So in that case, if we accept this interpretation, all the churches which are involved in the the ceremony of the Holy Fire acknowledge the right of an Israeli official to be part of the ceremony. So they uh, accept in a way, they acknowledge a political competency of Israel uh, in the old city. But this is an interpretation. This might be an interpretation. The fact that Israeli, the Israeli police is invited
0: uh, sounds like a way to legitimize Israeli rule
1: over the old city. But as it you might said... Be, it might be... An interpretation. So it's an I'm unclear one. i it is uh, that this is the case. I disagree, as far as I'm concerned, I disagree with that interpretation. But still, it's happening. So I, I guess but this is really open. Yeah. yeah,
0: this is so fascinating. It
1: might be an open question. This
0: was uh, Costantino Papastaris, currently assistant professor at the University of Thessaloniki with a long list of great articles, published in a number of uh, journals. And I just want to mention a few, particularly in uh, Bijmes and the Jerusalem Quarterly. Costas, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for the, 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 for the invitation, uh, Roberto. It was a real pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best.